That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits. Not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, Movie Night and Sarah's back were saved. Shop QVC.com podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Hi, friends. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you. This is my third take. I had two. I had too many flubs. I had to delete them. Here I am. All right. Take three. Welcome to the New Evangelicals Podcast. My name is Tim. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And you're in for a treat. Now, that's not to say that we don't have amazing guests always, because we do. We really do. I mean, look through our past episodes that are amazing. This is a special episode because I brought on Andrew L. Seidel, who is a constitutional lawyer. He's a constitutional attorney. I don't know the difference between the two terms, but whatever. I'm going to roll with it, all right? That's why he's on the show talking about this and not me, because I'm the dummy who doesn't know these things. Anyway, Andrew is someone who you're going to love to hear from, okay? He does a lot of work, a lot of work defending the First Amendment, That's what he does. So he knows the Constitution. He knows how these things go. He knows how court proceedings go. He's tapped in to what's happening in Christian nationalism. He is tapped into the world that you and I talk about often, that I critique often, because we're scared of of the theology and motivations of Christian nationalism to take over and, and privilege their rights at the expense of everyone else. And Andrew is someone who is fighting back against that. Now, I'm going to just put my, my cards out on the table for you. I recommend, and I'm not asking you to do this for me, okay, because it's not about that. If you have people or friends in your life or world who are open to good faith dialogue, who are open to hearing the other side of the conversation, send them this episode because Andrew walks me through what does the Constitution actually say? How do we interpret it? Is Does separation of church and state actually exist, even though it's technically not in the Constitution? I mean, we go over all of those. So this is quite the episode. This is the episode to show and share with your friends. So I recommend doing that. That being said, I want to say, as always, thank you so much for the support. Thank you for sharing our content. You know, if you don't know this, the New Evangelicals, we do a lot more than just podcasting. We are all over social media. We do Zoom groups. We even have a map on the newevangelicals.com that you can sign up for totally free, and you can see people who are in your area, and you can invite them for a cup of non-proselytizing coffee. That's a good deal. And there's no cost to that. And the reason why it's free and everything we do is free. There's no paywall behind anything we do is because people donate to keep us going. We are a registered nonprofit. All donations are tax deductible. So I just want to say if you are willing and able, would you consider donating? It literally keeps us going. It is the the gasoline to the in the engine. Without that, we can't do this work. So 
I will stop saying that now, but I just want to throw that out there. Also, if you can't donate, listen, I get it, okay? I know that times are tough, inflation's high, I totally get that. Do us a favor then, just rate and give us um, 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 an actual like, written review on your podcast platform. That also helps us so much. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mad Priest Coffee. Let me be honest, friends, and transparent right off the bat. I freaking love this company. I've actually met Mike before. He's the owner of Mad Priest Coffee. We got lunch when he was in town randomly one day. I love everything they're doing. It's ethically sourced. It's locally owned. It's deliciously tasting. And the branding is freaking great. Friends, you can buy a tote bag that says, I kissed shit coffee goodbye. Come on. We all know what that's riffing off of, and it's freaking brilliant. On top of that, they are currently launching a Get Mad campaign to end Christian nationalism. Wait, Tim, are you telling me that you have found a local coffee brand that is ethically sourced, that treats their employees right, that is trying to end Christian nationalism, that is socially minded, and is hilarious in branding? Yes, friends, that's exactly what I'm telling you, and it gets even better. If you go to getmad.coffee and you buy anything on that webpage, and in the checkout offer code section, you put in TNE20, you will get 20% off your order. Come on, it gets no better than that. I drink this coffee, I love this coffee, I love what they're doing, it's great, great stuff. So again, that's getmad.coffee, anything on that on that webpage, you purchase it, you put in the offer code checkout section thingamahoozy, TNE20, you get 20% off your order. Go check them out. Thanks, guys, for being a sponsor of the episode and of the podcast. It is awesome. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my wonderful interview with Andrew Seidel. Sweet. Andrew, thank you for making time. I, you know, I'm always honest with my audience, and I don't think I'm going to use the video for this, but I look like a caveman right now. And also, I told <laughs> you before we recorded that I'm late, I'm late to my own interview because I put my son down for a nap. I passed out with him because we have a four-week-old, and I woke up to a nice, warm sensation, only it was my son urinating all over the bed. So thanks for hanging on the Zoom chat and making time. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Of <laughs> course. You know, it happens to everybody. Every dad has been through a similar experience. I wish I could take a nap, too, right now. So I'm yeah. right there with you. I told my wife this morning, I'm like, I feel like I'm waking up and I asked, did I go to sleep last night? Did I sleep at all last <laughs> night? Like, do I, I feel dead. But anyway, we're not here to discuss childhood and, and raising children. But I appreciate you coming on because I, I told you before we started recording, I'm, I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time because you are a constitutional lawyer. You're working with a group called Americans United as their, I think the official title is Strategic Communications Director. And I'm excited about this because we obviously talk a lot about what we call Christian nationalism on the theological side and mm. even on the political side. But as far as like the legal side, I never had someone who's an expert like yourself to kind of unpack some of this stuff. So, so thanks for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. This is my jam, so I'm excited. <laughs> Perfect. Why don't we start here for the audience? How did you get into to, to constitutional law? I mean, to me, I'm not like in, I'm not a big detail guy. So the idea of reading like law books all day just it seems like a real drag. <laughs> but it's obviously necessary work. Why do you do it? 
Yeah, well, so I originally got into law because I wanted to save the world. Uh, literally, <laughs> I wanted to save the environment. Sure. Um, you know, I, so I, I was I was into environmental law, and um, I got uh, an LLM, a master's of law in international environmental law. Uh, but the whole time, I was also really fascinated by the First Amendment and religious freedom and the separation of state and church and how these things interplay. And I saw, though I didn't have a word for it at the time, essentially this this kind of rising tide of Christian nationalism uh, and started to really kind of alarm and concern me. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll switch from doing environmental law, where there are thousands of lawyers who are out there trying to save the world, and really look at this particular aspect where there's like maybe 10 lawyers who are out there trying to fight against this, this rising tide. Uh, and so I kind of, I kind of switched and got really fascinated by it and look every single day I wake up and it is my job to defend the first amendment to the constitution. And that's like pretty cool for a lawyer. That, I mean, to me, that's kind of as good as it can get, you know? Uh, so, so I, I feel very lucky to have the job that I do and I, I really enjoy it. Okay, so what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that essentially you're just a liberal godless Marxist trying to destroy <laughs> America by taking away the rights of Christians. I mean, I, I say that tongue in cheek, but you know, I grew up in the evangelical world, homeschooled for nine years, grew up fundamentalist. That's kind of the impression that I was given to people who are, you know, who, who work with, with maybe groups like the ACLU, for example, right? These are just mm-hmm. lawyers who are just trying to erode the Christians' right to express their own freedom you know I, break this down for me like, I, like is that what you're trying to do here how does this work for <laughs> real let's let's get beyond the talk radio rhetoric here you know why why do you want to defend the first amendment and who are you defending it from yeah uh great questions uh i am a godless heathen but <laughs> i am here i i'm here to protect everybody's right to worship or not as they see fit because yeah. and that is what our constitution does. Mm. So our constitution really does guarantee a secular government, a secular state. And that is the best and really the only true protection for religious freedom. There's no freedom of religion without a government that is free from religion. If, If your government can tell you or even suggest to you how to worship or that it would be a good idea if you prayed on this particular day, You don't have full religious liberty. So by defending that separation, we are defending the religious liberty of every single person out there. And, and you know, to me, this is is like one of the really remarkable things about our Constitution. There's a lot that's wrong with it, but it's one of Hmm. the things that it did that was truly unique and uh, original. So... Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you questions that maybe I was taught kind of growing up as as kind of answers to this stuff. So I, again, I, sure. I have someone who literally is in this world now. And I would I would love to hear your answers because you know it's it's important to have a, a wider perspective than than the one that we grew up with. So something I was always kind of taught was like, listen, this idea of secular. Everyone has a belief system. Everyone advocates for their belief system, and and, and to a degree, I, I understand that, right? Like for example, if I was to get to become a politician. I am a Jesus follower. How would I separate, you know, I guess policies that would not be Christian nationalist versus like, hey, affordable health care. That's not really a Christian thing. That's just like a, a human flourishing thing, for example. So how do you answer someone who might say that? Like, well, well, Andrew, everyone advocates for their own belief systems in the government. 
I think it's a question of using your power to promote that belief system, right? Are you mm. abusing the power of the state, power of your public position to promote your personal religion? Mm. That is a really useful way to think of where we draw the line. Uh, an example I like to use to help people understand this is like, and this is a case that the Supreme Court's going to hear on Monday, like think of a football coach at a public school, okay? Yeah. If that football coach gathers up the kids and says, all right, we're going to sit here. We're going to pray to Jesus now. Everybody, you know, get on your knees, pray. That coach right. is crossing the line, using their power to promote their personal religion. Right. Now, imagine a coach that's an atheist and says, okay, kids, gather around. We're all going to deny the existence of God right now. Everybody say it with me. There is no God. I, now, I've never heard of something like that. But <laughs> right, right. For the for purposes of our discussion. Right. A, 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 in a secular government, the, it's the coach who says, okay, kids, go out there and do your best. You know, run a button hook. Play, play the best game you can play. The coach is just doing the business of coaching, right? Mm. That, that is where we really that, – that's, that's what a secular government would look like. A government that's not not doing one way or the other on all those. So, I mean, one of the most common things we do here is by promoting a secular government, by separating state and church, by fighting for that separation, you are promoting atheism. And that's that's just not true. It's, it's a misunderstanding. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, I actually did a video on that uh, partnering with Americans United because I, I'm they they sent me some information. I looked into it. I said, yeah, we should talk about this because, again, as these what we call now new evangelicals, we're trying to really – advocate for all of our neighbors, <laughs> yeah. not just for, you know, one type of neighbor. And one of the problems that we found, and a reason why a lot of us are are, are renegotiating our own tradition right now uh, in this world that we call deconstruction is because we found that a lot of the words that we've heard, you know, as Christians, we have to advocate for religious freedom. It's really code for elevating Christianity above everyone else. Now, yeah. on a legal level, do you see this happening often? Like, you know, in the Supreme Court, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, that whenever Christians get a case to the Supreme Court, they almost always win. Again, I don't know. That's what I've heard. Have you found that to be the case? Like, have you seen that privilege happening or is that just not, is that not, not true at all? No, you are observing uh, a really important and deeply, deeply alarming trend that's happening in the law right now. And so I have a book actually coming out in September called American Crusade, how the Supreme Court is weaponizing religious freedom. And it just, just went on sale. I'd love for everybody to go pre-order it right now. Great. I'll I haven't it. actually, I haven't talked about it much, but like it is exactly what you are talking about. So I, I'm trying to show that in the book, in American Crusade, that in the last decade, there's this powerful network that has been working with its allies on the Supreme Court to redefine religious freedom as religious privilege. So in the book, I, I tell the stories behind wow. these Supreme Court cases that have been radically altering the law to sh show what's really go going on. You know, I'm drawing back the curtain. I'm showing how the sausage is made. And I'm telling these stories and doing it without the, the legalese and all the jargon that make these books impossible to read. So I want everybody to be able to pick it up and understand the threat. So, and it really is this, this network of, of well-funded, faithful activist groups that are attempting to weaponize religious liberty. So they're, they're And I call them crusaders in the book because you need to label. So the crusaders are perverting this constitutional protection and they're reshaping that protection into a weapon, into a tool to impose their religion on others. 
And you're you're absolutely right that they are winning more. And I have the data to back this up. And I, I put it very early in the book. And, and the other thing that you're right about is that the weapon is exclusive. You get to wield it if you are the right, you know, right in quotation marks, religion. Right. If you're a Christian or really, really if you're the right kind of conservative Christian. Yes. And successfully forging this weapon is is codifying the receding privilege of a demographically dwindling minority, right? So the, yes. this, this, it, it's the dwindling in the face of equality and demographic change. And as that's happening, they are trying to grab on to this special favored class status and say the laws here don't apply to us. So, I mean, you know, we really are talking about white Christian nationalism again. Yes, when I, I talked to Samuel Perry, who's another person I really like, and I really enjoy his work, I, along with Andrew yeah. Whitehead, he wrote in that, um, that, that um, I'm not sure what the right term is, but I guess that, that document that, that you and Jamar Tisby were a part of, kind of documenting that. And he did say that, you know, statistically, they find that, that the real hardliners are, um, they are dwindling. However, I think that one other part that he mentioned that I agree with is that uh, many Christians are at least neutral or empathetic to, to that kind of cause, uh, mainly white evangelicals. You know, it's like maybe the white, e the average white evangelical isn't going to be trying to get CRT out of the schools, you know, but, 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 but or CRT air quote, you know, um, <laughs> but, but, but when they see someone trying to do it, they're not going to go, Oh, well, that's wrong. They'll just say, yes. I mean, I, I guess that's fine. And so I think that, you know, I think that's a big part of it. I actually have, um, kind of a weird connection to some of this because when I was a teenager, I worked with an organization called Child Evangelism Fellowship. CEF. Oh yeah, CEF. okay, yes. Yeah. And I was a young, you know, just kid, and, and they do these things called five day five day clubs, and they went to the Supreme Court to get the right to do these clubs in public schools. And I remember getting the emails from them and saying, "Pray so we can get the gospel in the school." So I'm praying, you know, like a good white Christian evangelical. And as yeah. I think about this now, you know, of course, decades later, I go, you know, if this was a group, if this was if this was an, an, an Islamic group trying to do this. Tucker Carlson would have picked this up. Sean Hannity would pick this up. The entire white evangelical machine would have conferences about it, you know. And, and so I think that is a great example of what you're talking about when you say Christian or um, you know, religious privilege. Where well, our group can go in, in, into these schools and do these clubs, but no other group, especially you know the Muslims, they can definitely not do that because then they're indoctrinating our kids. Am I grasping what you're trying to say correctly? You. You are. You are. You really are. We are talking about redefining religious liberty as religious privilege. And, and that is weaponizing that concept. Uh, you know, it's so like, just think back over the last decade and think about the questions that the Supreme Court has, has grappled with in this arena. Can a business refuse to serve a gay couple in violation of civil rights laws because the owner of the business is a conservative Christian? Can the government refuse to issue lawful licenses or documents to a gay couple because the issuing official is born again? Can businesses and officials refuse to serve black Americans because their personal God says so? Not a case, but easily could be after all this. Hmm. Do Christian parents have a right to use the government's taxing power to fund their children's Christian schools? Hmm. Can they do this even though our taxes already pay for an entire school system that is open to all? Can a city council ban certain religious practices in an effort to drive a church out of town? Can business owners thwart laws to grant employees health care rights because 
of what the owner's holy book supposedly dictates? Can government officials use state and power and resources to spread Islam, as you just said? Or what about what about Christianity? Right. Or what about erect and maintain a 40-foot Christian or 40-foot tall Christian cross on government property? Or can believers ignore the rules? that are put in place to protect public public health, right? The, the answer to each of those questions, which are posed in real cases or could be, should be no. And legal questions of religious freedom, they're not always simple. They can be complicated. Uh, more often, they're just emotionally fraught, especially when they involve children. But in the push to weaponize religious freedom, weaponize religious liberty, crusaders have really misled and confounded many Americans about where we draw the legal lines when it comes to religious freedom, when it comes to that founding American principle. Now, religious freedom cases may not raise simple questions, but they're not very hard either. And, and this is what I really want to, this is what I really try to get to in American Crusade in the new book is showing where we draw these lines and that, that historically and legally, these really aren't they're not that hard questions. And I, I mean, I'm happy to break it down for it if you're curious. But that, Yeah, that's, I, I actually that's have, I, I have quite a few of these, like more, maybe more like, like legal questions while I have, again, yeah. a constitutional lawyer here. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so one of the first ones I thought about is a common, re, a common way that I hear evangelicals excuse their privilege, because some of them will admit it. Like, yes, I do want, I do want to favor Christianity over others. Is they'll say, well, Tim, the nation was founded on Christian Judeo principles. We are a Christian country. How does that work legally? Yeah. What, what's your response to that? Go ahead. I mean, in fact, this is not true. Um, I mean, and to me, that is Christian nationalism in a nutshell. So my, my, the, my first book is called The Founding Myth, yes. uh, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. And it, 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 this, it tackles exactly that question, right? Was America, not is America a Christian nation? I think that one's pretty easy to, to put to the side. But that yeah. deeper question, was America founded on Judeo-Christian principles? whatever that phrase. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, so I really just, I walk through, I mean, I've been doing this kind of work for a decade. I've had uh, thousands of these discussions and arguments in court, out of court, you know, mm. I, before judges at bars, you know, it, and I've not heard any new evidence to back up this claim. So I really, in the founding myth, I, I go through, I walk through every single argument that I've had and, and rip it apart uh, mm. with, with what I think are the best counter arguments that often involve uh, real history and real facts as opposed to alternative facts that we often see coming from Christian nationalism. I mean, it's really crazy because it is an, it's Christian nationalism is an entire identity yeah, that well, is totally. based on disinformation. You know? 100%. Right? Like, like, yeah. Yes. Um, and, and so what I really try to do in the founding myth is get get at that disinformation and tear it down. What are maybe like two or the three top counter arguments in a nutshell that you would say are like reasons why we're not founded on Christian Judeo principles? Like what would you say that they are? <sighs> you know, it's it's hard for me now because I, I honestly have not heard any good arguments about it at the, by this point i'm like ah, they're all they're all garbage um <laughs> but you know I, I debated um mark david hall who um is i called him a an intellectual amboni for christian nationalism during the debate which i don't think was unfair because he really is he's a scholar but he goes around kind of polishing the ground 
putting this respectable face on Christian nationalism hmm. um, and promoting some of these myths. Um, and that's probably, he's probably the the person who's raised um, maybe the best arguments, but they're all, they're all reasonably vague. Um, you know, you get things like, um, well, we're one nation under God and in God we trust. Those are probably like two of the most popular rejoicings joined as you hear when we're talking about a Christian nation and, and neither of them are from the founding era. The mm, right. Founding, none of the founding fathers heard either of those. Um, but the thing, I mean, the thing that I like to do and what I try to do in the founding myth is really go on the offensive um, and, and really kind of show that we are in fact a secular nation uh, founded on a secular constitution and that that is one of the things that, that makes our constitution unique and original. And I, so I hinted at this at the beginning, but I'll spell it out clearly right now. Like our, our constitution was the first to declare that power comes from the people, not gods. So, so the words at the beginning, we, the people are poetic, but they're also so much more. Hmm. Our constitution was the first governing document, not to mention a God or a deity. And it's godless by choice, not accident. There were there was a number of people in the founding generation who objected to that choice. They were pissed off about it. They wrote about it. Our constitution was the first to ban religious tests for public office in Article 6. And, and that was the only mention of religion in the original unamended document. Hmm. And the, the constitution is, by, by design, often vague and nebulous. Right. It was meant to provide sort of a framework. And they knew that the founders knew that meat would be put on it later on. Hmm. Um, but not when it comes to Article six. That is some of the most clear and emphatic language in the document that's often deliberately vague. It says no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust, right? Mm. So no, shall, ever, any, right? It, like it, right. Very clear and emphatic language. Um, Gary Wills, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author uh, and not exactly a liberal, uh, he put it kind of, he put it nicely. He said that we invented nothing except disestablishment. No mm. other government in history had launched itself without the help of officially recognized gods and their state-connected ministers. And so mm. that, that wall of separation between church and state, that is an American original. It is an American invention. Mm. The idea was floating around in the, the, the Enlightenment, but it was first implemented in the American experiment. Mm. And until that point in human history, no other nation, no other government had sought to protect the ability of its citizens to think freely by separating religion and government. And we should be proud of that fact. We sh certainly shouldn't let people undermine it with myths about a Christian founding. So again, there's a lot that's wrong with our constitution, but those secular foundations are what made it unique and are genuine contributions, not only to political science and thought, but, but to all of humanity. And those contributions are threatened, undermined, and under attack by white Christian nationalism. Let's talk about the Constitution a little bit because, again, you have to understand it. For me, I grew up on a steady diet of Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, Michael Savage. You name it, I've heard them. I grew up in the trades working with my dad. It was on all day. And they always hammer that they want to follow the Constitution. The Constitution, the Constitution, the Constitution. Um, mm -hmm. Which, okay, got it. Um, 
and one of the ways that 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 they say this is they'll say, well, like for example, in the Constitution, it never says separation of church and state. That doesn't exist in the Constitution. Yeah. Yet I know that phrase is used a lot. So break that down. Like, yeah. is that really the Constitution? Is it not the Constitution? Is it, does it matter that it's not? Explain that for us. Yeah, I will. But first, I'm going to do one thing. I want to pause here, and I'm I'm definitely going to answer that question because it's okay. one of my least favorite talking points. I just want to say that I am so astounded by people who have like the, the intellectual honesty and courage and fortitude to escape from that information trap. You know, to to challenge and reject the beliefs that shape how your entire world is constructed that you were told were unequivocally true. Uh, I mean, I really think that's impressive, and I hope uh, you are justifiably proud of it <laughs> thank you uh, but, i appreciate that yes i, I mean I, I really do believe that it's it's a hard thing to do um yeah. so the words separation of church state don't actually appear in the constitution yeah that's true um and i've never understood why people think that's a good argument <laughs> um you know it is a convenient shorthand to describe a sometimes complicated concept right so the phrase fair trial doesn't appear in the Constitution, but mm. we use it as a convenient shorthand to describe the rights in the Sixth and Seventh Amendment. Uh, and for that matter, the words Good Friday and Christmas and original sin, even the Golden Rule, don't have in the Bible. <laughs> right, right. Right. But they're, they're it's a convenient <laughs> shorthand. Exactly. So this is it's a convenient shorthand to summarize a concept that is woven into the very fabric of our republic. And it goes to those things that I was just talking about, right? We the people, uh, no mention of God, banning religious tests for public office, and all that's before you even get to the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's pretty clear. So the words come from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, in <clears throat> 1802 uh, to the Danbury Baptists. Uh, and, and he's talking about the First Amendment. And he's talking about both clauses, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. Now, that's a little bit in the weeds um, because the First Amendment, again, says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So that's the Establishment Clause or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that's the Free Exercise Clause. Okay? And those two clauses work together. They work together, they work to separate state and church. And they work to guarantee religious freedom because, as I said earlier, the only true guarantor of religious liberty is a government that is secular. And, and that is really one of the most remarkable parts of this. And what we've seen lately, to get back to your earlier question, is in the last 10 years, the Supreme Court is actually pitting those two clauses against each other and saying that the first part of that sentence is hostile to the second part of that sentence, which is pretty insane if you think about it. The idea that the people who drafted our constitution wrote one sentence and the first part is hostile to the second part is mind-blowingly nonsensical. Hmm. But that's where where we are right now. Okay, let me ask you this. Uh, I'm loving this. This is so good. I wish we had like 3,000 hours. There's just so much here. But We can do um, it again. We'll do it I again. I would love that. I, I want to hire you on as like our, our constitutional like retainer. You know, like, Andrew, we have questions. <laughs> you have to go live tomorrow at 4 o'clock because we have questions. Um, I, so, yeah. I'm willing. Right. <laughs> so in in that that clause, you know, respecting or or, um, or prohibiting the free exercise, you know, thereof, you know, of religious freedom. Mm -hmm. How I I think this is for so many people the, the question, like, what does that mean? Because, like you said, there are people. Let Let's use an example that we 
could all agree upon now. Uh, you know, back in the 1970s, 60s, and 50s, white evangelicals used that as a way to justify uh, promoting desegregation by by keeping black people separate from white people. They would say, no, this is a religious freedom issue, and they would appeal to something like this. You know, look, the Constitution is clear. You can't stop me from exercising my religious freedom, which just happens to be that black people should really stay away from us white people and pretty much live in the ghettos, right? Now, obviously now, almost, you know, no Christian says, yes, I think that is a biblical idea. Thank Jesus. We progressed from that. But that concept is still weaponized to fight queer rights, for example, you know? So, so how do we interpret that second half? And, 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 and how, how, how do we find that balance of like, Hey, this I know that, that that you're convicted of this, but it's a harmful belief of someone else versus I'm expressing my first amendment right. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. It absolutely does. Really really good questions. And this gets back to what I was talking about um with American Crusade with the new book that's available for pre-order right now. Uh the it's where do we draw the lines, right? Yeah. It's it's where do we draw the lines when we're talking about religious freedom? And what I said was that these are not actually that hard of questions to answer. Hmm. So let's, let's, let's try to draw some lines, right? Okay. Let's draw two lines. First, we are going to draw a line between action and belief. Okay. Your right to believe is absolute. Hmm. And that is, that is probably the only absolute right you have under our constitution. You can think freely, you can believe whatever you want, but your right to act on that belief is not Absolutely. Mm. Um, and if you want, I mean, let's, let's get biblical. Let's think, let's think about Abraham, right? <laughs> right. Abraham is free to believe that God is telling him to kill Isaac, but he can't actually kill Isaac and claim a religious freedom right to do that, right? Mm. You can't sacrifice your own kid. Mm-hmm. So you're free to believe that, but you don't get to act on that. The civil law can spin and prevent you from sacrificing your own child. So belief is unlimited, but action is limited. Hmm. Okay, that's line one. That brings us to line two. Where, when is it permissible for the government to step in? We know it's at some point now, so where? And the answer here is actually pretty simple too. Where the rights of others begin, right? So your right to swing your fist ends where somebody else's nose begins. Hmm. Your right to swing your religion ends where the rights of others begin too, right? The reason that Abraham is not able to sacrifice Isaac is because Isaac has rights too, and that he would be, Abraham would be violating those rights, okay? So you draw the line between action and belief first, and then you draw the line where people's rights are. And in some cases, you might draw it even before that, but we can definitely say that your religious freedom is not a right or a license to violate another person's rights, okay? Your right to swing your religion, just like your right to swing your fists, ends where the rights of others begin. And then there's a third line that we can draw that we've been talking about quite a bit already, and that's the line between church and state. So Mm. I lay out those lines in the book, and then, I again, I look at how the court has warped not just those lines and the law, but also often facts and reality uh, to, to actually rewrite those lines. Um, and, and I mean, I think that, I think the thing that people really need to understand, and this goes back to kind of what we've been talking about overall as well, is that in redefining religious freedom as a way to impose on others, to swing your religion in a way that, it, that violates other people's rights, that is an attack on freedom. 
right? That is an attack on true religion. The goal is freedom for me and not for me. The goal is favoritism. The goal is to codify that unearned, unwarranted, unconstitutional privilege of the white conservative Christian minority before their political power is outstripped by demographics. And we're back, so we're back to that again. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits. Not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, movie night and Sarah's back were saved. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. I, I want the audience to rewind that speech that you just did and listen to it again, because I think that is so good. And it is such a helpful, simple framework to start that conversation in. Because I never, and it just shows like just how how even deep-seated some of those beliefs still are in my own psyche, but I've never considered the difference between the, the I have the absolute belief to or freedom to believe whatever I want versus when that belief becomes an action, you know? And I, I'm like, wow, yes, that makes so much sense. That is so helpful. Um, you know, especially, again, we live in a society where people all people, not just white, specifically white men who are evangelical, but you know, white people aren't the only ones who who, do, who deserve rights. It seems like, um, and that makes a lot of sense. So I, I hope that people go back and re-listen to that and commit that part to memory. Um, as my Bible teacher would say, you know, memorize this verse, memorize it, commit it to your heart, <laughs> meditate on it, and one day when you're in a dark corner somewhere, it will come up, come to mind. You know, so there you go, friends, do that. Now, my next question is regarding the Constitution. I and this is very vague, but follow me if you can. I've been told. Or I've come to the understanding that there are different ways to view the Constitution. Um, there are some people who say the Constitution as it was written is, is I think it's called an originalist perspective versus maybe mm -hmm. someone who's like, no, like as things adapt, as society progresses, we have to continue to interpret the Constitution and as you said earlier, put some meat on it. Is that true? Are there like two different major schools of thought when it comes to constitutional law, I guess? Is that right? The, there is... Um a legal concept that has been dubbed originalism. Uh, there's, a, there's a very closely related concept called textualism. Uh, some people like to distinguish between the two. I don't think um, there's that much of a difference. Uh, you know, in, in my mind, it is, it's garbage for the most part, to be honest. It's, 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 it's political conservative masquerading as a, a legal analysis, a framework for legal analysis. Um, and it, it it is designed at its most basic level to protect that privilege that we've been talking about. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, now an originalist would say something like, I'm just looking at the original meaning of the words in the Constitution as they were written. Um, and uh, I, I do get into this a little bit in the new book, not, not too much. But, yeah, I mean, like, look at the Eighth Amendment. It prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Now, now, those words are, by definition, the meaning is going to change over time, right? right. Like, what, what was considered cruel and unusual in 1787, 1789 is not going to be 
what we consider cruel and unusual today. Right. That that concept is going to evolve. So the originalist, like Scalia, is going to say, if it was fine back then, it's fine now. Hmm. Um, and, and and to me, that is just that's insane. Um, I also don't think you would have I don't think you would write in words that deliberately uh, evolve with the intent that they never do that. So uh, and, and I, it's garbage. I'm going to leave it at that. It, it's a rabbit hole that is that is honestly not worth that much of of anyone's time on, in my opinion. Uh, there's there's some really fantastic law professors if you want to dive into that. And there there are really close analogies between Christian nationalism and originalism and textualism. And I, I wrote a blog about this a while back about uh, Kavanaugh specifically that I could I can share with you if you're interested. Yeah, share that because I, I was kind of getting in that direction of like, I, I have seen a connection. So, you know, in, in evangelical circles, there's fundamentalism, there's the reformed tradition, et cetera, but they, they both tend to see the Bible pretty similar, you know, which is pretty much like how it's written is how we interpret it. The most common sense, quote unquote, understanding, it must be the most right understanding, very literalist approach. And I have seen in my experience that there is a connection between people who view the Bible that way, who also view the constitution that way. Yeah. I have found as I've thought about it and just, you know, like a, you know, like we said earlier, kind of done the work that it's not a sustainable grid because life changes. I mean, technology <laughs> changes, right? Like <laughs> one example that we can use that people uh, talk about sometimes is like, you know, um, some Christians might say, you know, hey, the sexual ethics of the Bible are clear. Well, you know, IVF wasn't a thing. <laughs> you know, when, mm -hmm. when the Bible was written. So what do we do with that? And, and, and it's, it's, there's not a black and white rule in the Bible that tells you if it's ethical or not, right? So we have to do our best with what we have to make wise decisions now about things that maybe, you know, when, whenever these things were written or, or translated, they just weren't dealing with. That just seems like pretty realistic to me because like you said, yes. you know, cruel, you know, we're not tarring and feathering people anymore. Thank Jesus that we're not. And, you know, and, and maybe as we progress, we can find that, Hey, also maybe waterboarding is also cruel and unusual, you know, and we need that kind of, there's obviously a tension. We want to be wise. I get all that, but yeah, I, I, I saw that connection. That's why I wanted to ask you about it because we deal a lot with that in our circles now where, you know, a big critique that we often get is, well, you're just not following the Bible. It's like, well, no, 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 no. I'm just not following your interpretation and your historical reformed tradition of the Bible. That's a very different concept than not following the Bible, you know, so. Yeah, no, okay, well, we'll dive into it a little more. So originalist judges claim to be sticking to the dry text of the Constitution, right? Except that doesn't change except when you amend it, okay? Right, um, right. They And they claim to define those words just as the framers of the Constitution would have defined them at the time. Right. And in their minds, kind of like what you were just talking about, any judges who don't follow this originalist philosophy are activists. They're legislating from the bench. Um, they're, you know, they're harming our Constitution. Yes. Um, and they but they only use that philosophy when the outcome suits their conservative agenda. And I'll give you a good example of that in a minute. But originalism really does have this holier holier than thou flavor. I really think it does. Um, it suggests that these judges are the only judges who look at the constitution and all those other judges are just, they're just using their personal whims and preferences to decide cases. We are the purists. We originalists. And all you other people are just, uh, you know, you're overstepping the bounds. It's inappropriate. And so I think there really are clear parallels between originalism and, and conservative Christianity, right? Like purity, textualism, sanctimony. Um, 
And I don't think it's a coincidence either that a lot of the originalists also uh, highly religious and highly conservative, uh, the judges. Um, but let, so let me give you another example. I said uh, specifically um, about judge, originalist judges deciding outcomes based on their, their personal whims, not the, the text of the Constitution. So um, in the Constitution, um, the, the presidential oath is laid out in very clear terms in the Constitution. It says, I, I do solemnly swear and affirm that I will faithfully or affirm, excuse me, it's in a parenthesis, it's not both. Um, really kind of a cool little thing that the founders did too. Hmm. Uh, so you can swear or affirm in parentheses, uh, parentheses, yeah, that I will faithfully execute the office of the president of the United States and will to the best of my ability, preserve, protect and defend the constitution of the United States, period. Okay? That is where the presidential oath ends. It does not include the words, so help me God. Uh, another fun fact, the first law that the uh, first Congress passed was an oath for themselves. And they actually, in the draft, they included uh, two references to God. And then they took it out for the final to make it a godless oath. Anyway, wow, that's just a fun, fun side note. So, so the oath in the Constitution specifically does not say the words, so help me God. And that was the addition was actually challenged in court. And this was when Brett Kavanaugh was uh, a judge on the D.C. Circuit. And Brett Kavanaugh is an originalist. He's a textualist. He's, you know, he's one of these judges we've been talking about. Um, and he basically and I'm not going to get into all of all of his reasons, but he basically said, yeah, no, it's fine. You can totally add words. Not a big deal. So this is like. This is the text of the Constitution spelling out the text of an oath. It's like double text, double originalism. <laughs> right, right. And he's like, ah, it's fine. You know, yeah. it's fine. You could, you could, you could just add stuff if you want to. It's not a big deal. Right. So I mean it's it's intellectually bankrupt. It's, this is not a real, it is a way to assume a higher moral authority uh when when debating these issues uh it, it's it's not real well it's same garbage, thing with like uh, you know adding under god to the flag the pledge of allegiance that, that, that that's a 20th century invention that is not an originalist yeah. idea and if anyone talks about taking it out what do you hear oh these atheists trying to destroy america it's like yeah. it's it's not been in there that long it doesn't have to be but I, I digress. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's keep moving because I have other things to get to with you while I have you here. Um, so uh, I would like your input on this. This is maybe a little more outside of just the Constitution, more, a little more political. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, I, I grew up steeped in, in right-wing everything. Um, understood it. I, I still understand it. I remember when when Obama got elected and Glenn Beck was crying on the radio saying this is the end of America as we know <laughs> it. I mean, literal tears down his face. You know, here we are. Mm -hmm. Um However, it really seems like Trump, um, something really shifted with the Republican Party more than usual in my perspective. Now, I'm 33, so you know when Obama was around, when, we, when George Bush was elected, I was, I was still pretty young, so maybe I just didn't see it. But it just seems like Trump and the, the coining of the term alternative facts, for example, really has pushed the Republican Party in a very far right, I would say more even openly fascist in some sense, direction. Yeah. And I, the reason why I'm hesitant to say that is because there's a voice in my head saying, well, Tim, like Democrats aren't perfect either. And like that, I believe that is the case. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a diehard Democrat. I don't have a flag of Joe Biden on the back of my truck. But it just seems like in this case, in this world we're living in, Something is way wrong with, with with the Republican Party compared to the average Democrat. Am I making that up, or are you seeing kind of the same thing too? 
No, I, I definitely think we're seeing a, a trend towards authoritarianism. Uh, and I, I talk about this both in The Founding Myth and again in American Crusade with a slightly, slightly different frame. Um, I mean, I mean, Donald Trump became president because of Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think there's there's any real doubt or argument to be made on that front. I think I think that and the data, I think, is is pretty clear as well. Yeah, um, I agree. So. But if, but it also we have to. T- so think back to the, the demographics. OK, think back to what we've been talking about with. Um, the the demographics shifting and how that is that is scary. Okay, um, white Christian nationalists are afraid of those changing demographics, and they're reacting in a way that is allowing them to cling to it. This is actually it's called dominant group status threat in academic circles, mm-hmm. and there, there's some really important markers. So, like in 2014, uh, white Christians ceased to be the majority in America for the first time. Um, and there are, there are some studies that show that I think it's like 2046, white people are not going to be the majority in America anymore at all. Um, and other studies are showing the non-religious are on the rise, you know, pretty significantly. Um, you know, now there are more atheists and agnostics than there are Hindus, Jews, Buddhists, and Muslims and Mormons combined. Huh. Um, wow. There are one third of the country's non-religious. We had the first black president. Women are asserting their power. You know, all of this is is kind of threatening. Hmm. And they are turning to more authoritarian ways of preserving their privilege as equality is on the rise. Uh, so you, I, I think you are absolutely right to suggest that. And I think that, that that is exactly one of the problems that we are seeing with Christian nationalism. And that's, that's also one of the things that Americans United for Separation Church and State is really trying to do. This is the organization that I work for. You know, we're trying to bring together people of all religions and none to fight in the courts and in the legislatures and in the public square. We're, we're fighting for freedom without favor and equality without exception. Mm. Right? And, and that itself is the threat to people with privilege. So yeah. you're not wrong. And, and it is, I don't... I should I should hasten to add that I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily a conscious choice, right? I, th- I think a lot of it is fear based. It, it is it's being afraid of losing that privilege um, and feeling that fear and reacting in a way that makes people feel safe. Well, I think part of what has fueled this is that there's um, a pretty well established history um, since I would say like the 19 early 1900s on of a pretty anti intellectual movement in evangelical circles yeah. um, tied to fundamentalism and you know um, the 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 um, the Supreme Court decision you know with evolution in schools like all this stuff and and you can you can really trace this like there is this this pers- there it, it's almost in the air that you breathe in church culture sometimes of of we can't trust most science, unless it's Ken Ham from the Creation Institute, or you know, or or we 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 can't trust this media outlet, but we can trust Rush Limbaugh, but we can't trust the mainstream media. We can't trust that 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 the climate's warming, and so there is this sense where, and I don't want to, you know, I'm really big on not dehumanizing. My, my my parents are still very conservative, and I love them dearly, but they're very gullible to believe any kind of talking point if it comes from the right person. 
And I realized that that people like Charlie Kirk, for example, he's a good example of this, mm. has really capitalized on that. And they and they've really created this web of talking points and rhetoric that really create this feel that you're right, my Christian rights are under imminent attack, and I have to fight like hell or else we're gonna lose the country. But when in reality, yep. like you said, it's simply really just making room for other people to have the, the same equity and equality that maybe they, they never had before. But that gets perceived as I'm being now persecuted in America because it hasn't been this way before. And and to me, I I I hope that we don't see another insurrection. No one wants violence. I would just not be surprised if we start seeing more and more violent acts because I follow how Charlie Kirk is currently working with large megachurches to speak at their churches on Sunday morning. He's working with, with Jack Hibbs from Calvary. He's working with Awakened Church in San Diego. You know, this is a really, even though we can trace this kind of stuff before, I feel like it's at another level as far as like the intensity of this really weird partnership between far-right authoritarian politics and pundits and now the evangelical church where it's so blatant. I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, familiar with Awakened Church, but they are literally advocating Damn. having governors, governor candidates coming to their church saying, vote for this person. If that doesn't violate nonprofit status, I don't know what does, but I, I see no consequence happening with them. I, I don't even know, I don't even know like, like what to do with that. And you know, it absolutely does violate <laughs> right. it's called the Johnson Amendment. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think that, well, I we I'd be I'd love to come talk about that sometime. That's a that's a whole nother bag of uh, fish or kettle of fish, whatever the whatever the saying is. There's yeah, no, whatever. But I mean but the but the important thing is what you're talking about. Christian nationalism is an existential threat to the American Republic. Yeah. Right. It is it is fundamentally opposed to democracy and pluralism. And if we do not yeah. fight it, if we don't yeah. relegate it back to the fringe, the America that we aspire to will always be a dream, mm. right? Do we have a government of the people, for the people, and by the people? Or is it a government of the conservative Christians, for the conservative Christians, and by the conservative Christians? That is the battle that we are in right now. And it, it is a desperate fight against Christian nationalism. This is a political theology that is an existential threat to our republic. I mean, that, that's why I wrote the founding myth why Christian nationalism is un-American. And it's not often that you choose a subtitle for your book and then the subject runs out to prove you right by assaulting our democracy, right. fomenting an insurrection, right? Right. That's what happened January 6th. Right. And, totally. and it's not just and it's not just the insurrection though, too. I mean, right, like think back. Actually, I mean, we can do more than that, right? Think about the, the Muslim ban. I mean, th th that is Christian nationalism written into policy. The child separation policy at the border under the Trump administration, Attorney General, then Attorney General, Jeff Sessions justified that with Romans 13, mm. which he learned to do in the White House Bible study. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the same thing. Project Bliss, that, that this statewide shadow network formed to push explicitly Christian nationalist yes. bills in, in state legislatures. Right. So so Christian nationalism is not a scholarly debate about our history or about how our country was founded, even though it was treated like that for a long time. It is it's this sinister exclusionary movement. It wants to rewrite our history in an attempt to redefine America and real Americans, TM, according to the Christian nationalist identity. Right. Yeah. So that to be an American is to be a conservative Christian and to be a conservative Christian is to be an American. Right. Uh, I mean, th th think back to uh, June 1st, 2020. Right. So this is six months before the insurrection. Insurrection. Mm -hmm. Yep. Trump. Trump had peaceful protesters 
gassed, beaten, and brutalized with rubber bullets so that he could walk to a church and pose with a Bible. He trampled each of the six rights protected in our First Amendment to align our government with white Christian nationalism. Yep, yep. Yep. It's it's this haunting, despicable scene, and it harkens back to so so many of the darkest moments in American history. And the, and the point of that malignant stroll was to show that Trump and this nation are church, that we're Bible believing, Bible beating, that we are a Christian nation, and anyone who disagrees with that should be beaten and gassed, especially if you happen to be protesting because Black Lives Matter. Right. The the point is to elevate one group white Christian nationalists above everybody else, Mm. right? I mean, this is what, this is what we are talking about. Mm. They want white conservative Christians to be a special favored class and everybody else, you are a second class citizen or worse. Mm. Right. So, I mean, so they're, they are working to codify conservative white Christian privilege in the law. And and the way that I always end that this rant that I am on right now, rant away, you know, They're attempting to rewrite the American identity by rewriting our history. Mm. And, and they, they have to do that. They have to revise our history. They have to claim that we're a Christian nation. They have no other choice because of this simple fact. America will never be a Christian nation because the moment it becomes a Christian nation, it will cease to be America. Mm. Do you think that, that, and I'm just asking the question because I don't have an answer to this, that, that we're dealing with like conservative or is it something else? Like, I, I okay, for example, I was watching the Mitt Romney-Obama debate a few months back. I was like, wow, I really appreciate, like, this debate. I was watching the Bush-Gore debate, you know? I'm like, wow, you know, yeah. respectful. Like, you know, they actually agreed on a lot of things. Like, they had different ways of maybe doing it. So are we talking about the same kind of conservative that maybe – you know, is represented in those debates or is this something different? Like, I I don't have another word for it, um, but I I just wonder that question. I would love your thoughts on it. Yeah, that's a a really interesting question. I mean, essentially it's, it's what happened, Um, (laughs) you know, and, and I don't, I don't know that I have a good answer for that. Um, I, I do think I do think there are a number of factors uh, that that played a role. I think social media uh, yeah. has played a big role. Yeah. I think yeah, I think I think that plays into another thing, which is the 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 media bubbles and silos that that people are stuck in, um, the echo chambers, uh, which which social media reinforces. Yeah. Um, you know, the anonymity of of being having most of our interactions be uh, online. Um, I think lessons not just the discourse, but our respect for each other, probably. I think this, so I think there are, there are, there's probably a lot of things going on and we're going to be asking that question hmm. for a long time. You know, I mean, as you and I are recording this uh, last night, you know, we, Rudy Giuliani, who helped oh, foment the insurrection, who ought to be in jail, I is agree. taking off, he's, he's being the, the unmasking, being the mass singer, being cheered. And I lost um, my you shit. Know, you only have, I'm like, why are we cheering was, this man? Why are we cheering him? Yeah, like I'm gonna like that. That to me, I was actually thinking about this this morning. Like that might be the moment that we look back on it, and we're like, "Yep, that that was the irretrievable moment uh, where <laughs> where we we lost." Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I hope not. But um, so I, I don't know that I know the that I know the answer to that. I know that. I, I'll say I don't know, which I'm, I'm perfectly happy saying. <laughs> how how much does Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobart scare you because they are <laughs> I, 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 that's I, that is you know it's, it's a little tongue in cheek but honestly 
they terrify me. Seeing Marjorie Taylor speak at at, at the Nick Fuentes rally, uh, advocating for blatant anti-Semitic uh, views and praising Putin and chanting Jesus Christ, um, you know, a few months ago, to absolutely almost no widespread Republican or evangelical condemnation. Honestly, Andrew scared the shit out of me. I'm like, okay, like here's a smoking gun example of a Christian <laughs> at an anti-Semitic, white nationalist, misogynistic, racist, homophobic rally, and no one says a damn peep. What is going on in the world that I'm, I'm inhabiting? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I, I had to get your thoughts on, on these two people because they terrify the hell out of me. Yeah, I, I mean, I, there's a lot. There's a whole lot to be scared of right now, not just in, in American politics, uh, in, our, in our government, uh, with our environment, in the yeah. world at large. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there, there's a whole lot of, of reason, I think, to be deeply alarmed. Uh, you know, and it, to me, it's harder in moments like that to try to find hope um, and, and really try to, to feel good. Uh, about the world uh, at moments like that, you know, I, I to me, being human is an adventure, right? Yeah. It, it's it's hard. It can be really scary. Sometimes our fellows uh, can be hateful uh, and despicable and even violent. Um, um, Jamie Raskin, Representative Jamie Raskin's uh, son Tommy, um, he he used to say in response to malicious gossip. Uh, he would say, "Forgive me, but it's hard to be human." Mm. And I always love that because it, it, you know, it really is hard to be human. It, but it is also an adventure, you know. To say that there's an end to my existence is to concentrate the sweetness of every moment that we have. Yeah. Um, and I try, I try to hold on to things like that when when I look at at Bobert and Green and some of the, you know, Josh Mandel and some of the other folks yeah. out there. Um, I try, I try to give my life meaning purpose. I try to do good. I try to practice empathy. I try to leave the world a better place in, in every single thing that I do. Um, you know, do good, love blindly, practice empathy, forgive readily, yeah. create beauty, learn with abandon, challenge tradition and injustice. I think those are the best things that we can do to combat the, the greens and Boberts, you know, above all, find something bigger than yourself yeah. to fight for. Yeah. Um, That's good. Um, are there any uh, Republicans that you're like, yes, like love to have you. Like I, I think about Adam Kingsinger a lot. I, I tend to like him a lot. It seems like, but I don't know much about his policy. I just know he speaks out against Trumpism. And I'm like, I'll take it, Adam, uh, a standing ovation to you. Uh, you know, are there any people like that in, on, on the more conservative Republican side who are like, Hey, Andrew, you know, like I get it. You know, I'm with you. I, I want to fight for, you know, equality for all, et cetera. Anyone like that? You know, it's, it's a hard question. Um, Fair you know, my, my, my friend, my friend, uh, Chrissy Stroop, she put it really nicely. And this applies, I think much more broadly than just politics too, mm. right? Like even to, even to our conversation, um, she says that, that shared, shared values matter more than shared beliefs. Mm. But I think I agree with that. You know, I, yeah. so to me, I, I would rather have a, a drink and a chat and maybe split some guacamole with, with a group of, of Christians who value anti-racism and social justice than with a group of anti-equality atheists. And there, there aren't many of those, but they exist and they are loud. I know a few um, of them. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, 
he will, and just to, to full circle this a little bit, shared values, I think, matter more mm. when we as a nation face an existential threat like white Christian nationalism, right? Because, because America is a set of shared values. And Christian nationalism refuses to share. It excludes non-Christians. It excludes the wrong kind of Christians. You know, and we really, as I said before, America will never be a Christian nation because the moment it becomes a Christian nation, it will cease to be American. So those two things can't peacefully coexist, Mm. right? We face this choice as a nation. It's Christian nationalism or America. You can't have both. So anybody right now who's out there opposing Christian nationalism is on my side. My, My dream is to live in a country where the separation of church and state is valued by everyone, where we understand, all of us, that true religious freedom can't exist without a secular government. Mm. That when, that we get that there's no freedom of religion without a government that is free from religion. I want, I want to live in a country where, where my nonprofit, Americans United, is unnecessary, which is yeah. a weird <laughs> way to act. You know, I mean, Tim, I want to live in a country where you and I can get together and have these deep, fascinating conversations yes. about God and the nature of the universe and why we're all here and disagree about those things. But right now, at this moment, we are fighting a movement that would, if given power, make those conversations impossible. You know? Right. That right. It, would, it would privilege white Christians about above everyone else. Right. And it would create the America of two classes. And so our, our democracy is on fire, mm. right? Our, our democracy is not slipping away. It is being stolen. Mm. The, the republic is being strangled. And those of us who share values like equality and justice and truth and fairness, we, we have to come together to stop the arsonist and the thief and the murderer. And that means fighting Christian nationalism. Yeah. That means fighting for an America where the separation of church and state is not just absolute, but is valued. So anybody yeah. who wants to do that is on my team right now. Well, I just want to be very clear that if we ever got a beer or guacamole, I would need to proselytize and convert you to Christianity. That's my only goal during the whole conversation. Mm-hmm. So just so you know, I'm okay. very honest, you know, if you don't pray the prayer, you know, did, are we even friends, Andrew? Are we even friends? <laughs> Challenge accepted. <Tim. laughs> um, you know, I, I really, I, I love that because... And I'm going to tie this up and then we're going to wrap it up here. And I know you got a jet in a minute, but, you know, I think the audience who's probably listening is probably, you know, thinking about a lot of this and kind of bringing it into their own context of this value versus belief system, because you're right. I found that a lot of the people that I thought I shared beliefs with turns out I didn't share the same values with. I mean, that's why I I left white evangelical culture and systems. Like when the Trump thing happened, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I thought we I thought by definition, if we had the same beliefs about Jesus and the Bible, we'd have the same values about, you know, like not voting for a guy on the cover of Playboy, for example, you know? Um and 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 I think a lot of us are finding that we're making friends who maybe we didn't think we'd make friendships with because we share common yeah. values, even if some of, of our of our belief systems are radically different. And for me personally, that's somewhat new territory um, when, when it's on this level and it's so public, but I think it's necessary. And I also think it's a good reminder that the world is always bigger than our old, than our own worldview. Certainly I have my beliefs. Yes. I have my views about the Bible and Jesus, but there are people who don't have those beliefs, but we can still share uh, core values of respect and dignity and, you know, and, and, and just equality for all um, as, as, as much as we can. And we can wrestle through these things together because we have each other's best interests in mind. I think that's the path forward. My last question to you, <coughs> sorry, this nasty cough, um, is is how how do you recommend 
people who are maybe Christians who see this and are, are terrified, how do we move forward? How do we advocate for better policies? We don't want to become fundamentalists all over again in a new kind of extremism. <laughs> that isn't what we're trying to do. How do we navigate this world going forward in a, in, in, in a healthier way that resists Christian nationalism while also retaining our Christian tradition? Yeah, I mean, I, I, to me, that is kind of one of the central questions. Um, and whether or not Christians can pick up, American Christians can pick up this mantle and defeat Christian nationalism. That, I mean, that is, that is the key to yeah. defeating Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. You know, so this big, this big report on January 6th and the, uh, the January 6th insurrection and the role Christian nationalism played that I yeah. helped kind of organize and contribute to. Um, that was when I was at the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I'm now at Americans United. And we partnered with the Baptist Joint Committee yep. for Religious Liberty and and uh, Amanda Tyler over there. And they have this group called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. Mm -hmm. And that was absolutely crucial to me when I was working on, on the, in the early stages of this report, because we are not going to win unless Christians step up and, and fight Christian nationalism on their own. And, yeah. and I, now I, I'm not a Christian personally, but whatever it means, uh, you know, rejecting it uh, in whatever way, shape and form, I think you have to arm yourself with the information, what it is, why it's wrong, why it's a threat. I think I, you have to, you have to understand the disinformation that makes up the identity um, too. So I, you know, uh, the, the number one things I think are, are to really arm yourself with that information so that you can shout it down so that we can relegate Christian nationalism back to the fringe whence it came. Yeah. Um, that means, uh, you know, joining groups like Baptist Joint Committee and Christians Against Christian Nationalism and Americans United. It means picking up uh, copies of all of the books. I mean, there's so much great literature out there right now on Christian nationalism and you know, white evangelical racism and, and the, all of the, the problems. And, and again, you know, I, not all of them written by godless heathens like me, but by, by believing Christians yep. who are yep. trying to do this important work. No, I, I think about um, so, uh, so, Anthea Butler Brown's book, uh, Evangelical White Racism, is a great book, and you know, it's taking America back for God. There's so many that are written by Christians who are trying to fight against yes. this. I think it's so necessary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, arm yourself with that information. Um, go to the library, start checking out those books, uh, and and really, I think you have to accept that a lot of this is going to fall to you, unfortunately, because it me me and my criticisms are are easily dismissed, um, but it's much harder to dismiss uh, from some. I believe there's something in the Bible about getting one's own house in order. Tim, do I have that right? You're you're in the ballpark, you know. The, the, okay. the Greek is a little fuzzy, but something like that, you know. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, something I about like a plank in your own eye, about. you know, something like that. I don't know, you know. Something like that. Yes. Okay. Yes. But I mean, yes. So you know, join join up with Americans United, with Baptist Joint Committee, with FFRF. Pick up founding myth, pick up white evangelical racism, taking America back for God, you know, learn this stuff and you've got to call it out. I mean, that's the number one thing. Yeah. Um, you know, James Madison said that, uh, well, 
basically constant vigilance is a better way to say it to bring it into the more modern era. You got to call it out where you see it. You got to call it out. Clearly, you're not an originalist. <laughs> well, on, on that note, Andrew, you know, I appreciate you making the time. Um, it means a lot. I will plug your where people can get your book, and I'm also going to plug that, that that report that you did with Jamar Tisby, Andrew Whitehead. That report's amazing. Yeah. I I followed the Thanks. instruction pretty closely, but even I learned a bunch of new stuff in that. So it's it's so well put together, and I I wish every pastor on the, uh, in America was preaching it from the pulpit because it's so necessary. But we will keep sounding the I alarm on our that. side, and I appreciate you making time, and I'm sure we'll do it again. But if you'll excuse I me, I have, to so. go, I have to go clean a dirty sheet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, this is a blast. I'd love to do it again anytime you want to have me on. So and we we'll get it. that guacamole and beer sometime. I'm too. in. Where do you, are you in the East Coast? Where, where are you at? I'm in Wisconsin right now. Uh, right now. That's up in the, that, that's that's yeah. That's not going to be forever. So. All right. Well, one day. <laughs> one day for sure. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Tim.